we're going to do this morning is let you interview him, okay? Uh, you can ask any question you want, and he'll tell us any story he wants to answer that question, okay? Um, so it should be fun. Um, I'm going to ask the very first question. Uh, I'd like to know from Dr. Adolph if he, uh, if he remembers the very first patient or one of the very first early memories he has of treating a patient in Africa and the impact that that had on him. Okay. <clears throat> I well, just I just want easy questions. <laughs> I just want easy questions. Okay. Yeah. Well, make up something then. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I got to the hospital in Ethiopia, uh, I found that the operating room table only had three legs instead of four. It was an old examination table that was way down here. And so my first operation, actually, my first patient was my operating table to make a fourth, fourth leg. <laughs> <clears throat> so I should have been a veterinary doctor, of course, because they, the horses have to have four legs in order to run. Anyway, I noticed that the operating room light <clears throat> was a single uh, incandescent bulb, and because the operating room was open on three sides, <clears throat> the light went back and forth like this, so that to get really good light on the operating table, you had to move the light, move the table back and forth like this to correspond. <clears throat> I looked at the, the ceiling, and I saw that it was sort of slanted like this, and I thought maybe that needs to be investigated. I found that the wood in the ceiling, the beams, had been used as a nutritional supplement for a certain t type of ant that grows well in Africa. <clears throat> and I'll let you guess what that is. When I walked from between the clinic and the hospital, I found that my predecessor had been rather short because the beams came right across <clears throat> at my chin level. Uh, the next thing that uh, I noticed is when I went to check these patients, I found that there were five patients in a row on the male ward that had been bitten by various wild animals. Uh, for example, the first was a lion, the next was a wild dog, the next was a hippopotamus, <laughs> then the, the, the next was a, a leopard, and so forth, and I thought, I don't think there's any place in the world that could collect such a, a menagerie <laughs> of unusual things. The other thing I found was that 91 of my 115 inpatients had a disease that I had never heard of, never seen, and I thought after, after all that long residency and extra work and extra examinations, I certainly should have come across something that is so widespread here. Actually, 7% of the population of the area where God sent us had this condition. It's now called podoconiosis and tungiasis. But I didn't really understand it until I went to the operating room to do an emergency operation on a fellow missionary who was bleeding to death from a duodenal ulcer. I had, I had to do my own anesthesia, and I put the little... <clears throat> Uh, monitor, ear, uh, ear monitor in my ear so I could hear the heartbeat all the time. 
and know what what next to do. And uh, suddenly, in the middle of the operation, when I had the stomach over here and the duodenum over here, uh, I started getting shaking chills and fever, and started to feel rather like this. So I lay down on the floor. And, of course, I was doing one thing, that was praying. Uh, if you need to be intense in your prayers, that's one, one way to get into a situation where you're really praying. The closest doctor was at least three hours away, and that was an impossibility. So I knew it was going to be that God would help me. And so uh, I regowned the glove five different times, <clears throat> Uh, finished the operation, went home, of course, and did an exam, a complete physical examination on myself, recognizing that if you're treating yourself, you have a fool for a doctor and a fool for a patient. <laughs> anyway, I found that I was getting this mossy foot myself. And uh, so I took, of course, uh, I saw a little place where it was indurated and so forth, and I took a little... Uh, uh, opened a little place and put it on a microscope and I looked and I saw all these <clears throat> jumping things around I said oh I finally found something that's causing this tra uh, crazy problem anyway uh, that's sort of uh, the end of the, the first my first, first thing yeah <laughs> okay who would like to ask a question of Dr. Adolph yep so um, I'm a Long-term missions eventually, um, and trying to find the right sending organizations. Do you find that most missionary visitors are hospital-based, clinic-based, or blended practice? Um, <laughs> again, I, I only like easy questions. <laughs> um, I think uh, I could say that in my experience, when I go to the uh, to the CME that uh, Christian Medical Dental Society has arranged in Kenya that uh, maybe the majority of the doctors I see are hospital-based. I think there's less, uh, I think there's uh, a little bit less uh, aggravation of some kinds uh, with a hospital-based ministry than uh, a little clinic in the middle of the jungle somewhere, uh, an outreach from there. Uh, that's my own personal feeling. Could you briefly describe for us how you, or not so briefly, so desire, um, how you knew that God was calling you to serve in this capacity? Yeah, um, I grew up in a mission hospital, was delivered in a mission hospital uh, in China because my father was a missionary surgeon who at the age of 11 felt the call of God. What happened when he was 11 years old was the hospital in China was being built. And he didn't get there till 1929, uh, which was a considerable time later. But I had the chance to observe my father and his activities from the time I was very small. <clears throat> and uh, some kind friend thought that my father's hospital certainly should have like a vehicle. Uh, at that time, 
It was happened to be the first vehicle in the whole province of China, uh, and so uh, <laughs> something's crawling on you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Might be that mossy foot. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm used to that. So, oh, it sounds like it sounds like it finally can finally be heard. Okay. <clears throat> Um, so, um, when I was, uh, God gave me the opportunity to narrowly escape death from various things, uh, 15 different times when I was, while I was growing up. And, uh, but when I was 14 years old, October 17th, 1947, <clears throat> a sophomore in high school in Shanghai, uh, after reading the life of Adoniram Judson, I knew exactly what God wanted me to do, and I dropped to my knees and, and prayed for God to, sh- to show me exactly where he wanted me to carry out those, um, the work that he had for me. There was absolutely no question after that. Even though my college friends said, there's no way you're ever going to get into medical school, <coughs> They had ample reason for believing that, but I knew that they were wrong, and so God, God got me into the to medical school as the first person from our class, and I knew I knew that God was preparing the way, even though I gave Him uh, opportunity to change. Uh, I should say, for example, that I was very careful not to study Spanish because I thought. God might send me to South America or Central America. <clears throat> and I already had a little bit of Chinese. And I thought, you know, it would be nice not to have to study another language. So guess where I was when I finished medical school at the University of Pennsylvania? I was headed to New York City to get on a ship that would take me to the Panama Canal Zone. So I had the abbreviated fast course in Spanish which I used for the next four years. Can you tell us what you did in the Panama Canal Zone? In the Panama Canal Zone, uh, besides going out to ships and and checking on uh, people that thought they were sick, uh, we took a surgical uh, internship, rotating internship, and three years of surgical Residency, uh, which then was followed by two years of surgical preceptorship in North Carolina. It was a wonderful place for our children to be born, one of whom is here and still alive (laughs) and has has actually served in Ethiopia for 20 years and will be going back shortly. spent over 40 years in uh, Bangladesh. And if you go to Bangladesh, my impression was that it would be really good to have at least two extra eyes sort of back here. (laughs) And if you go there, maybe you'll 
find out why I thought that was true. <laughs> okay. I think there was somebody over here that had their hand up first. Yeah. Um, did you ever try to teach the local doctors how to, or anyone to come alongside you? Uh, yes. Um, my predecessor, who said he was going to stay with me for my first five years and get me well introduced, had only one eye. That was a great inspiration to me because, um, number one, uh, there aren't too many people that will risk being the only doctor for a mission hospital um, if they only have one eye and have to do surgery and everything else. So he developed uh, a program where we trained 491 medical auxiliaries in a three-year program. And uh, so I, I got started very well on a training program. These people would go back to their home community with evangelism, discipleship, and uh, diagnosis and treatment, and the ability to refer when they needed to. And so actually, when the communists came and took over the country, these people were spread all over the country doing something that we could never have paid for, uh, transporting them and supporting them all around. Uh, so, yes, and right now we have a surgical uh, training program. It's with the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, and we have eight surgical residents. We have graduated five. They each have their own uh their own hospital, usually a government hospital, which they've changed into a mission hospital because of their leadership and their training. And uh, so, yes, uh, training is important. How did you find your trip to Bangladesh? What did you do there? Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was with the U.S. Navy in Taiwan for two years during the Vietnam War under the Berry Program as Chief of Surgery for Headquarters Support Activity Hospital. And the mission told us that we should go back to the United States and uh, raise, raise funds uh, for one year. Uh, I thought a little bit differently because I knew the story of of my parents, and I knew the story of people like George Mueller, and I said, if God wants me in Ethiopia, I don't think he wants me to waste a year doing something I don't know how to do. <laughs> and so we trusted God and took the embassy flight to Ethiopia, which stopped in Bangladesh, and I had the opportunity to work uh, at my brother's uh, hospital for... Uh, as I recall, one month, and uh, then and finally made it to uh, Ethiopia. Uh, since then, I, I've had the opportunity to come other times. Each time, I <clears throat> recognized that I needed extra angels while I was there. Another question? Who was your favorite? We're in the back. How old were How old was Dr. Adolf when he and his wife went on their first mission assignment, and what was the second one? Bear? What advice do you 
what advice do you wish somebody had given you at that time? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I was I was 34. It was 1966 when I fi- when we finally uh, reached our first assignment, and um, what advice did I wish somebody had given me <laughs> um, before I went? I think that I had all the advice of my parents. I had all the advice of many good friends. Uh, so I can't say that I lacked I lacked in advice. Um, what I perhaps lacked was um, <laughs> that I was I was still afraid <laughs> of my situation. Uh, let me just say that, like my friends would say, just think if you go and be a missionary, just think what kind of a car you're going to drive when you come back after your first five years. It's going to be just like the other missionary cars that you've seen. You can look through the the front fender uh, and see the other other tire, and and you'll you'll get to a stoplight, and the car won't start, and you'll have to get all the kids out and push it across the intersection while everybody's honking their horn. And so I decided that I was going to sort of show my friends that missionary. Um, Missionary cars don't always have to be that way. So I prayed that I'd have a really nice car. <clears throat> and I would show them that that's, you know, you'd, if you trust God, you can have something fairly nice. Well, two weeks later, I got this wonderful letter from a friend who had actually uh, delivered our first son. And he said, I've got these two cars, uh, and I'm sort of thinking that while you're home, uh, we could probably get by on one car instead of two. And so, like, we, ha- I want you to choose the, the color of the car you'd like. One is canary yellow, and one is, uh, like, really black. So I thought, canary yellow, <laughs> that doesn't seem to fit. So I'll go with the black. Well, I should have chosen the canary yellow <laughs> because the canary yellow was brand new, and the black car had just had uh, its engine replaced and a, a new one put in. But they were both Mercedes. And so we, get, we pick up the car and we're driving along to the next church trying to convince them that we're really, really poor. <laughs> the only thing we didn't have on our car was one of those ambassador flags. My favorite part was seeing the miracles that God was doing very regularly. And if I hadn't been in that situation, I would never have seen them. And, um, and also, I had an arrangement that all the patients that had, had prayed to receive Christ and wanted to follow him, uh, the next day when I made rounds, 
they would tell me which ones, and I would uh, pray especially with them. Um, and when I'm saying when I'm saying that uh, I see the miracles almost every day, I'm I'm just uh, I can share, for example, why I feel that way. For example, when you're 67 years old and God tells you to build a new hospital in a foreign country like Ethiopia, uh, your first impression is, in order to do the project right, you have to at least be living 10 years. Since my father had a severe heart attack when he was 50, I thought, I'm already 67. (laughs) What are the chances of living another 10 years? Anyway, the impression that I should do it was very strong. So on our way back to the United States, we stopped in Switzerland. And uh, the first place we stopped was up in uh, an alpine uh, chalet where there was a Christian nurse. And um, she handed me a 1,000 Swiss francs, which she said God told her to give me uh, for a new hospital. Well, that was sort of before I really, really had it firmly in my mind that, that God was going to supply when I didn't have anything. Well, the next day, uh, we went to the German uh, Christian magazine for all of Europe, and the editor interviewed us uh, about this new hospital we were going to build. Well, <laughs> I still wasn't completely convinced, and... $5,000 was sent in from the article that he that he's, uh, uh, wrote. And then right next to them was bread for the world. And they said, why don't you come out for lunch? It's one of those, you know, sit on the sidewalk kind of places in Europe. And they started the conversation by saying, I don't, we don't have any money. Uh, that was bad news. <laughs> uh, but uh, they said, we did hear about something really great. There's a Swiss hospital that's trying to get rid of its equipment. It's being closed down by the government. Uh, and they weren't even in Africa. I don't know why, <laughs> how that happened. Anyway, the next day we went over there. They said, you got everything you want in here. We have to get rid of it. Well, but we didn't have any money to move it anywhere. And so we prayed, and on Saturday, a Christian truck driver found out about it. He got some volunteers together, and they took all the things uh, from the the hospital. So if you come to the hospital, of course, you'll see that uh, everything looks pretty Swiss. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the other... So then I opened my email a while later, and, uh, you know, you can't, you, you do need some funds to build a hospital. And I opened my email, and lo and behold, this person who I don't even recognize the name of says, I want to give 150000 to the hospital. Well, it's one of those emails you don't even know if you want to open it up because you don't know who it is. Uh, I'm, fortunately, I didn't delete it. And... She said, I'll give 50000 uh, tomorrow. You give me all the information. And if that works, everything goes through nicely, I'll give 100000 the next uh, the next day. 
So, guess what? Three days later, it's 150,000. So, when I go, when we go and thank her for the 150, somebody else finds out and wants a presentation about the new hospital, and he wants to give 200,000. So I thought, well, maybe I should just stay here in Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) Have you written anything about your experiences? And if you haven't, I I ask you, please write these down. We argue against atheism. Yes. Today's decision, tomorrow's destiny. I can endorse this book. Dr. Adolf talks in here about how tomorrow uh, the future is built on small decisions uh, at a time. Uh, and then holistic attitudes, God's prescription for your good health. Um, another book that he's written here. So. Twelve special attitudes that God prescribes for us that will make us much healthier. Well, we could. Uh, Did I hear the question? Okay, she's asking a really important question. When your when your family's in two different continents, how do you stay close? Okay, she's asking about the brother brother relationship. Yes, that's also related to the fact that our son uh, has been a missionary in northern Kenya with the Gabra uh, tribal group uh, for. 20, 27 years and uh, away from the internet most of the time and uh, our daughter Carolyn was working in the far uh, the most distant um, uh, nurses station in, in Ethiopia right near the Sudan border so communication <clears throat> wasn't uh, and uh, communication with Bangladesh <clears throat> was not very much better. <laughs> In fact, maybe it was worse. <laughs> uh, so there are there are things that you have to adjust to when you know God has you in the place that He wants you. And um, so, a lot of the people that I'm talking with here in the United States. They say, well, I I would never leave my grandchildren to go overseas uh, to do this kind of work because, like, it just wouldn't work out for us. Well, I think that God wants us sort of to love him more than anything else. And although we prayed vigorously for our children to become missionaries, when they actually became missionaries and we couldn't... (laughs) communicate with them anymore. We perhaps wish that we hadn't prayed quite so vigorously. (laughs) Are there special things that you would tell people now that um, you can do, you need to do? Well, uh, one of the things, if you're assigned to a, 
a one-doctor hospital, which that does, I don't think that happens anymore. Uh, but say you, you feel like, well, if I go, maybe God's not going to send. Maybe nobody else will come, and I'll just be completely burned out. Well, um, so there was one day like that that happened to me uh, seven months after I'd been in Ethiopia. My predecessor, who said he was going to work with me for five years, left after six weeks. I'm still trying to figure out what I said that might have been offensive. Uh, anyway, um, the, I was completely exhausted every day, every night, every weekend. And so I prayed in the morning, God, I can't do this. I know you want me here. I think the only solution is for you to send me a surgeon, not just uh, anybody, but somebody who can really take care of the patients while I'm while I am away because I think I have to get away. Well, when you pray a prayer like that and you're in the middle of the sort of way back in Africa someplace, uh, you can't imagine that God could possibly answer a prayer like that. <clears throat> so I went on with my work. I was removing a large tumor. Uh, from the neck with extension into the right chest. I just about had it completely removed when there was a knock on the operating room door. It was my wife. She never comes to visit me in the operating room to see the wonderful surgery that I'm doing. <laughs> so, of course, I'm, I'm very upset about that. And anyway, I looked behind her and I see somebody with a huge, big smile on his face. And guess what? He's a cardiovascular surgeon, not just like a regular surgeon. <laughs> and um, so somehow I arranged for him to have a whole mission hospital, all 115 beds, plus the people under the beds, uh, and our house and, every, and all the food in it. Um, and uh, we sort of disappeared. Uh, and, and so I asked him, of course, you know, how he ended up to get there in the first place. And he said, well, I was born in Manchuria, a white Russian that escaped from Russia. And I found out he was studying medicine in Shanghai when I was in high school uh, in Shanghai. And he had escaped, managed to escape Mao Zedong's uh, China, and got all the way to Australia. He went to visit a, uh, to the airport in Sydney and because uh, a friend of his was coming and he saw the stewardesses come off the plane and there was one of the stewardesses who'd been in his first and second, third, fourth grade classes in Manchuria and of course uh, they wanted to get married, but not right on the spot. <laughs> she took him all the way to the United States. He finished his surgical training, his chest surgery training. Two years after he'd been in practice, he remembered that as a young person, he had said, I want, I want to do missions. Well, his church didn't know anything about missions, and so he did missions the way everybody tells you not to do it. 
he put the world map on the dining room table and he closed his eyes. He put his finger up like this. He said, wherever it's going to go, that's where I'll go for one month. Of course, you know exactly where his finger landed because God was directing it like this and he couldn't go anywhere else but right there. When he got to the Addis Ababa airport, he still didn't know what he was going to do. And so he went to the telephone book, just like all of us used to be trained to do, the yellow pages and all. We don't even know what they look like anymore. And so uh, he found something that said S-I-M. He knew in China there was a C-I-M. He thought, well, maybe there's some way related. We had five hospitals in Ethiopia. We had one in Sudan, and we had one in Somalia. So he had seven choices. The administrator had seven choices of where to send this fellow, and he decided to send him on a plane to us the next day. Well, you can, you can remember that uh, because God obviously was answering my prayer a long time before I started to pray. And if you know that God can supply in every single way, you know that you can trust him and you know that you're safe in his hands. What, uh, what did you do on an ongoing basis to get rest, relaxation, time away? Uh, fortunately, I attended the burnout session by my good friend in the back there from Mayo Clinic. And... Um, I had had advice from my father, uh, who was a missionary surgeon, and so I made s special steps uh, to take care of uh, the problem. Uh, the first thing I uh, noticed uh, reading in the surgical books, uh, that surgery done between like midnight and 6 a.m. has a higher mortality uh, in other words, if the surgeon is sleeping while he's doing the operation, <laughs> it's obviously not going to turn out quite as good as it would otherwise. And so I made a decision that if I could get the operation done before 10 p.m., uh, that was okay. But if I, couldn't, if I couldn't get it completed by 10 p.m., I was going to wait till the morning. Another thing that I was going to do, I was going... I recognized that I would have to, if I was only surgeon or only doctor at a hospital, I would have to get away for one month every five months. And uh, so we, we uh, sort of had to make an arrangement with the mission <clears throat> so that they, they would let us do something so drastic and so revolutionary. And I think, I think most recognize that... Uh, Humanly speaking, it's not possible for somebody to work around the, the clock, even though all, all residencies don't completely uh, know that yet. <laughs> but maybe, maybe someday they will. Um, so um, the other thing we used to do is we would take like two weeks just for praying and for um, meditation and uh, t take one hour every day. Bet for me, it was six to seven because almost nobody, uh, everybody who's coming in uh, for the night is already in their bed and the other people haven't wakened up yet. 
So you usually have a, between six and seven <clears throat> that you can have a, a time of medica- meditation and prayer and Bible study. If you don't have that, um, the, there's no way that I think you can make it. Question way in the back. As a missionary kid growing up, raising missionary kids, uh, what advice do you give to help your kids grow up uh, following God? One of the things we recognized was that uh, we had more family time uh, on the mission field than we did uh, in the United States. That is, if you live right across the street from the hospital, there are some disadvantages, but you can get home for every meal and you can have it with your family. When I got back to the United States, I recognized that many of the patients that I saw, they didn't see their, their husband or their wife or their children uh, because they were scattering, they were doing soccer, they were doing baseball, or they were doing something. And mealtime for us was very important. We could have all three meals together almost all the time. Uh, the other thing is we involved our children in our work from the very beginning. By the age of 10, our son, I I gave the the job of maintenance of the hospital to my son because he showed special abilities in the area of uh, electronics and and plumbing, plumbing by by, uh, making him. (laughs) It's, It's hard to actually get interested in in doing a lot of plumbing when you're only 10 years old, but when it's an absolute necessity. Now, you see, we got our water on the backs of five donkeys uh, making five trips down to the spring and to the hospital. Uh, and when we became more advanced, we, we had an actual dam and a special um, type of setup that would actually pump the water without electricity all the way up to a hospital. But um, then for our daughter Carolyn, she felt called to be a missionary nurse when she was seven years old. And so she started making rounds on Sunday mornings with me on the non-contagious patients. And by 10, she was circulating in the operating room. Actually, that's sort of the best job of everything because you take the baby from the C-section and go take the child to the grandparents and you get acclaimed as being the most wonderful person in the world. (laughs) 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 By by 13, she was uh, assisting me in the operating room. And so, you know, she really had a long surgical residency. (laughs) Anyway, in short, we involved our children in the, in the work, and uh, they were very active in it. Sometimes people would come to the door and knock, and I'd say, oh, somebody else wants to see me. And no, no, we want to see your son. <laughs> that made me feel very good. <laughs> yes? How much does it cost to start up a hospital? I mean, you're talking about <clears throat> Yeah, I thought... How much does it cost to start up a hospital? 
I thought, you know, if I got a million and a half, that that would really do it. Um, but the reality is we're at nine million right now, and we, we have a little bit more to go. Uh, and in answering your question, um, we recently were again in Switzerland, and uh, we, we heard again about a Swiss hospital that was going to be demolished, and they wanted somebody to take care of the windows and the doors and the sanitary fixtures, which is actually just the things that I had on my list <clears throat> for completing the hospital that we're, we're doing. So, of course, the next day we went to the, the director of this hospital, and he said, uh, we found out that he was a missionary kid from Papua New Guinea, <clears throat> and he wanted us to take wanted us to have the first choice of everything inside the hospital. These are two large buildings with a huge glass atrium, glassed-in atrium. And uh, I, I couldn't believe that they were going to tear it down. Uh, but since they were all the items that we needed, I thought that was really great. And when I spoke three days later, I mentioned it in the church service and one of the ladies, one of the people in the auditorium said, I want to cover the expenses of getting the windows out, getting it all packed up, and getting it sent to Ethiopia. So it doesn't always come as, as monetary. Sometimes it comes in other ways. Uh, we, went, we went to an equipment place that gathers good equipment from all over Europe, and the fellow, instead of spending just 15 minutes with us, he spent two whole hours with us asking us questions and getting very enthusiastic. And when we left, we found out a, a very rich lady came to his location and said, God is telling me that I should do a project in Ethiopia. Do you have any idea about what kind of a project, you know, that could be. Well, he just spent two hours <laughs> listening to my stories, and uh, fortunately you only have to listen to it for an hour. <laughs> anyway, uh, she said, I want to I take, take on that, um, and can you give me, could you have them come to my house? Uh, I would like to make an arrangement with them. We did that later on in the week, and... She's very enthusiastic, wants to go visit the hospital, and, um, and I don't know if she's going to finish the project. She could easily do it, judging from the house that we visited that looked over the Alps. <laughs> and she just said the day before she went uh, to that location, uh, she said one of her apartment buildings was going to be sold, and she would have, she would have funds to use for the hospital. So, in answer to your question, if God wants you to do something, he's going to supply it, even if it's more than a million and a half, which is what I thought was necessary to start with. I want to ask you directly how old you are, but have you lived ten more years plus a few since 67? <coughs> yeah, yes, I have. Um, <laughs> um, 
it's it's now um, if you count it uh, um, years years of age from um, conception, uh, I was 80 on March 11th. So um, yes, God has given me <laughs> given me more years than uh, I thought I needed. Okay, I'm, in the last uh, couple minutes here, I wonder if you could tell us um, one of your favorite miracles that you've seen God do in a patient's life, physically, spiritually, and <clears throat> leave us with a, a challenge for our own faithfulness in following God. Uh, it's a, a patient that I was, was referred to me uh, here in the United States. She'd had multiple sclerosis for eight years, and she had already had a tracheotomy because her, her diaphragms were moving very minimally. Uh, she had central vision out of just one eye. Uh, she had to self-catheterize herself regularly. Uh, she could not... She had not walked for eight years. Uh, she had quite severe atrophy in her legs. She'd been to the Mayo Clinic many times to confirm diagnoses and so forth and to get the very best treatment possible. She had been admitted to the hospital seven times uh, in, in February when I was asked to see her uh, with the idea that she was going to die. So um, I was asked to help her with several things to make her more comfortable. And so I did those things. And then I, was, I got a special call to go to Bangladesh uh, to work at the hospital there. And I had, of course, 10 good reasons why it wasn't very convenient <laughs> to leave my surgical practice for three months and uh, helped the surgeon who was all by himself there, even though, of course, I felt very sorry for him. Um, I made up ten good reasons why it wasn't God's will. Uh, knowing that the telephone system in, uh, in Bangladesh doesn't work very well, I said, well, if it's really important, I'm, I've got to have a telephone call from this doctor <clears throat> telling me how important it is. I went to my hospital to the administrator of, uh, of the clinic that we were working at. He said, you've got to have two doctors to come here because you're the person who makes the money for the clinic as a surgeon. And so there had been no applications for three years. So I thought, pretty safe. Uh, I looked at the bank account. I saw that uh, it would cost $32,500 with tuitions to pay and all the different things. And so I didn't have any money even to buy one ticket one way to Bangladesh. I thought, that's really good. And then, and then I thought, well, um, how, how am I going to... How, uh, when I talked to the administrator, he said, this, the old clinic must sell before you go. So I thought I was really safe because there hadn't been anybody to ask about the old clinic for three years. 
it had been on the market and nobody was interested. Well, the first thing that happened was our son calls up from university and he says, Dad, guess what? I've got full tuition and a stipend for next year. Hey, Dad, why aren't you jumping up and down? <laughs> Four doctors joined our clinic in the next month. Bad news. I got a telephone call, and it's from the doctor himself. He had to go to the Mayo Clinic with his wife to get a special treatment. And so, you know, everything, everything meant that I, that I was going to go, of course. And it, it, was a, it was an amazing time in Bangladesh. Um, and so I think I probably said too much, but I'll stop right Dad there. Told us the rest of the story about the patient back in That's right. Sorry. <laughs> The first news I got when I got to Bangladesh was that my patient was completely well and she was waiting for me to come back and close her, close her uh, tracheotomy and close uh, an ileostomy that I'd made for her. And, of course, you can imagine my surprise because she was as hopeless as any patient I've ever prayed for. And... It was on a Sunday afternoon. God seemed to tell her, I want you to get out of bed. Well, if you haven't been walking for eight years, you're, you're going to be a little bit careful about jumping out of bed when God tells you something. Anyway, she, walked, she got up. She walked out to the kitchen where her mother was, and she was just, you know, overwhelmed. And church service that evening, she walked down the aisle, and of course everybody was absolutely stunned but that's just one of many miracles that I've seen and if I hadn't gone to do what God wanted me to do I don't think I would have seen any of them Dr. Adolph thank you and uh, we thank you for you and Bonnie and all of your family for your years of faithfulness and um, I just heard in the radio uh, somebody talking this week of all the qualities that God wants in us. Uh, probably number one is faithful, being faithful. And we thank you for your faithfulness. And uh, we appreciate you. Any last words? It's been a privilege to be able to be here with you. It's uh, always a, a stimulation to see uh, people who are ready to take over uh, the, the work that needs to be done. Uh, when we started the hospital, uh, I was told that nobody is going to come here to your hospital. Nobody wants to get trained as a surgeon who's Ethiopian. Uh, all those things were correct. But now we have eight surgical residents, and five have finished, and we have ten expatriates uh, for long-term service. And that is a big miracle. Thank you again.